Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Gene Toomer's 1923 book, Cain, is one of the great works of American fiction. It's a modernist work, meaning it doesn't follow strictly one genre, which would be, for example, the novel, the epic, a theater play, or a poem. It combines poems, songs, short stories, but woven through this relatively short text is a preoccupation and a concern with the lives of African Americans in the early 20th century in America. For Toomer, this is not a sub-concern of what America is about, but it is a central way of understanding our country, our culture, and who we are. Toomer himself has been discussed widely and in many ways because he straddled what's considered the racial divide in this country. He was born by a family whose grandfather included the first black governor of Louisiana, but he went to white schools and black schools and supposedly, in the strange language that we still employ sometimes today, passed for either one of those two categories. I spoke with Ismail Mohammed about the way Cain allows us to think in the middle of this space that Toomer vehemently refused. He was furious when the work was originally characterized as a work of African-American literature because it felt that it limited and even ghettoized his achievement. It was the only book he would publish, but I consider it one of the greatest books in the canon. So let's listen to Ismail explain the great relevance and the profound importance of Cain in the canon of literature that defines us as Americans. First of all, Ismail, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm really happy you make time. It's early in California for you. Yeah, it's very early, but uh, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to, to be a part of this discussion. So I read, um, you wrote a really great um, piece on Gene Toomer's Cain, and I, I wanted to start us out with a very famous statement that Toomer made about Cain, where he says it's a swan song and it's kind of the end. And I wanted to ask you about this comment, which has shaped the reception and move right into the book is also beginning. And I'll give you the quote, which you're familiar with, where he writes in his autobiography about the book published in 1923. The folk spirit was walking in to die on the modern desert. That spirit was so beautiful. Its death was so tragic. Just this seemed to sum up life for me. 
and this was the feeling I put into Cain. Cain was a swan song. It was a song of an end. What I wanted to ask you is, Toomer thought it was the end of something that he tried to capture. The end of the spirituals, the end of kind of people who'd lived through slavery, that sort of a moment in time in the South. But it's also, the book is also a beginning. It's 1923 and it ushers in something totally new. And maybe start sort of out there how you encountered this book first, which both looks back and looks forward. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say a bit about how I encountered the book first. I, I, I first read Cain, I think in 2009, when um, a new edition was published with the afterword by, by Henry Gates and, and, and Bird. Um, and I had never actually heard of the book before. Um, I was still kind of discovering the various corners of African-American literary history and I was completely enamored of the book because it described African-American culture, folk culture in particular, um, but also urban culture in a way that felt so um, estranging, I think. It, it was intent on portraying African-Americans and African-American culture in a way that departed entirely from some of for some similar conversations about African American culture in terms of like um, you know black poverty, black oppression, or anti-black violence. Um, I had no interest in that at all. Um, and so I, I think that's why people continue to be drawn to Cain. Uh, I always know that's what, why I why I'm like so drawn to Cain. It's it's got this kind of alienating quality to it that um, continues to be stunning every time I read it. Um, and when it comes to the to the to that quote about about the book being a swan song, uh, it's funny to think about that song both kind of like saying goodbye to a culture that during the Great Migration, when when Kane was was writing it, was rapidly disappearing. Um, I think it's important to think about the book as uh, being situated during this cultural moment where Black people were fleeing the rural rural South and in droves to find better opportunities uh, in the North. Um, and that is both a loss for um, a culture that, you know, musicologists and um, people like Zora Neale Hurston, anthropologists and sociologists were trying to capture rapidly before it, it dissolved, but also a kind of opportunity to create something new in the North. Um, so the song is both a kind of uh, goodbye to all of that, but also an anthem for a new kind of urban African-American culture. Yeah, interesting. It's new. It's Zoriel Hurston went, you know, she is from the south of Meadenville, Florida. He, Tuma was not really from the south. His grandfather was from the south, but he grew up in Washington mostly. Correct. And it's saying this that this southern life is, of course, something that stays with people. Also, you say they move north or they move west, or but they they don't lose it entirely. And Kane is a strange. It's, I'm curious what you meant by saying it's estranging or it's an alienating book. It's also such a kind of a miracle of a book because someone actually reshaped the entire genre of what it means to tell a story. So he says, this is actually the story of a people and I'm going to give it a form that you haven't seen before. Exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story about a people that you have not been thinking about properly that you haven't been able to conceive of in all of its complexity. And I'm going to create a literary form. I'm going to take the novel. I'm going to call this a novel. 
and completely break it apart and make you see these people anew and in the process create make you see the novel form anew i always compare this book to um something like their eyes were watching god which is is also obviously um a, a classic of african-american literature but and it's it's complex and fascinating in its own ways but that book is very much you know in in the kind of fashion of, of Zorno Hurston being an, an anthropologist trying to collect this culture and present it to audiences so that it can speak for itself. It's very much about kind of representing uh, African-American culture. And Kane feels like it's less about trying to capture the Black South as it was, so much as it's about um, uh, running it through a prism so that you can understand how bizarre, uh, not, it's not that the culture itself is bizarre, but so you understand how bizarre the conditions in which that culture has flourished and taken root uh, are. Like, you know, Toomer is very concerned with, even as he, you know, celebrates his culture, he's very concerned with breaking down our assumptions about how uh, natural or organic it is. Um, he's not interested in kind of uh, reifying race. Even as he celebrates, celebrates black, blackness, he knows for a fact that um, the kind of cultural rules around hypodescent or you know the one drop rule, the uh, cultural fictions around um, what constitutes blackness and whiteness in a world where like miscegenation was real, where there was considerable cultural and um and sexual interaction between black people and white people in the south he knows that you know black and white are necessary fictions that we have forced ourselves to believe in and he's for me came feels like it's deeply invested in uh, uh unveiling those fictions in a sense even as it says well if blackness is not uh the kind of one drop rule enforced identity that we've become familiar with. It's something else that we need to like reckon with. It's interesting when you just said this idea that race is a fiction, a very powerful myth that structures American life for such a long time. It's an invention. It's we so as scholars or academics, we sort of know that and say that. And he's writing from within this space, giving mm. us fiction that all these characters kind of explode that myth and say they're not totally cohering to this structured system imposed on them. They know it's there and they're working something else out for themselves. So I think it's very important that it's fiction because he's not doing a sociological study of what is race in the South and how do people situate themselves. He's taking characters who kind of strain against it and their lives right. are much bigger in a way. They're not containable by this. And the exactly. characters are striking. I mean, the, first, the book opens with... Becky, I think that's the first story. These characters are sort of jump into your life and sort of say, this is, Becky is a white woman who had two black sons. This is, I think, exactly. what, it's the opening of the book pretty much, right? It's, right. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, a, it's a provocation, right? He's, he's saying, like, you you think you know what race is, but we live in a world where this white woman, quote, unquote, this white woman can have these two black sons. And right. it, it's it's so surreal. It's not clear that it's even, uh, that it's it's, a realistic uh, setting or a conceit for a story, but he 
he's kind of slapped you in the face like right out of the gate by saying like this is this is the actual reality of american race relations and it's something that only fiction can get at only fiction kind of can tell us how people both internally you know psychologically emotionally but also in terms of concrete acts of, of resistance um kind of strain against those those racial modes. And he sets you up in the beginning right away and says, this is what white folks said about Becky. This is what black people said about Becky. Two almost identical terms, but very different. Exactly. Who was she to have these, not one, but two black sons? And then the community also, in a really amazing way, that America really tolerates her, kind of secretly supports her, lets her live there in this kind of no man's land where she doesn't belong to anybody no one wants to claim her but people allow her to exist it's this kind sure. of denial in america that this exists so you're right he slaps you in the face in the first couple of pages and throws you and says this is this could be your view of her that could be your view of her but she lives in a different place exactly and in almost an entirely different world um this kind of um it's hard to you can't say it's a, a middle ground, but it's it's a it's a, a verified realm that that actually Tumor himself thought himself uh, thought of himself as living in. Um, he even he described his childhood in D.C. with his grandfather as being kind of midway between two worlds, like one white, one black. Um, but you know, I'm thinking now about Becky. The thing about Becky is that um, that story kind of like into this great conflagration, right, of, of violence. Um, and it, he's, even as he acknowledges that, you know, that, that realm exists, he also knows that it's, it has to be disavowed, right? It has to be disavowed by society, let's say. And the story ends, like several of the stories in the book, end with extreme violence, really shocking violence, very American violence, um, right. because it's racially motivated every time. So it's very specific. But I think what you just said, this kind of space in between, the book is located in that space that I think Toomer refuses a kind of sociological or political set of, set of categories and says, my book speaks from this place, which is not sanctioned by anybody, which one group will disavow, the other group will disavow. They both know it exists. They both live in denial of it in a way. Right. And I'm going to st stake my claim to that land. The first you to see it and it's it's the funniest thing that um you know when the book uh was published it was met with kind of like confusion by by critics um du, du bois i i recall um said that he he wished it was less vague it was that he, there was meaning instead of like the stuff he had to like vaguely guess at um people generally thought it, it portrayed african americans and in, in a way that uh they did not want to be seen, you know, in a time where aesthetics were seen, thought to be part of the kind of political movement towards, you know, integration or, or civil rights. Um, and yet, despite the fact that it kind of sticks a claim to that middle ground, the mass reception of the book, of that book kind of disavows that history, <laughs> right? When Liver Wright published the book, they immediately declared it a kind of classic of african-american literature and tumor was livid he was livid that that the right would deign to tell him how he needed to identify and, and what the book needed to represent right so the history of the book is um one that just kind of takes a knife to tumor's stated intentions which is to to 
stake a claim to this this other world that that we disavow. And this other world he wants to claim that is the true America. He's, he said, "I'm the first conscious American. I'm the first person of a new race of people. I'm the very first to be conscious." And what I'm interested in is that. He alludes to Walt Whitman once in the book, in the Katniss story, sort of someone knew Whitman. So there's a reference of an America that's yet to be formed. So fiction has a really important role. It will not be decided by the courts, by politics, by people. But through these very impassioned life, and all these characters in this book are definitely driven by very human things. They're Mm -hmm. not activists. They're not social workers. They're not politicians. They are driven by desire, fear, jealousy, anger, rage, hope. And I think that gives the book a different kind of role when it's read, as you said. It's read as one of the first African-American novels. It's even hard to think of it as a novel. Then people think, oh, it must have a political agenda. Correct. Exactly. And he, he doesn't really give you one. He's not saying there's a way out of any of this. He said, we're in it, we live in it. It's it's not just messy. It is so painfully contradictory that it usually ends in extreme violence or yeah. refusal. I mean, it's it's funny that, that you mentioned um, uh, desires. I, I think that so many of the stories are, and also poems and stage plays in this, this novel, quote unquote, um, deal with sexual desire um, and the potential for miscegenation and, and how that kind of like immediately uh, disrupts any possibility of, of political action, right? Desire is, is what is what confounds politics. Um, I'm thinking we, we mentioned or we were kind of exchanging notes yesterday about um, Bono and Paul. And that is a, a story, um, kind of in brief, I'll summarize it about um, two people who are training to be teachers uh, in uh, Chicago. Uh, Bona is a white woman and Paul is a, a mixed race um, person. <laughs> I, call him, I, I was tempted to say mixed race black person. <laughs> and, um, Falling into exactly the trap that Tumor said is a trap. Exactly right. It, it's, it's so hard to train yourself to not, not speak in those terms, right? But he, but it's right. And in, in the story, it's set up, actually, I, when I read the story the first time, a very long time ago, mm-hmm. I started guessing at his race because I knew it was there and important, but I couldn't quite find the spot where he had identified him. Right. Because he's identified through these conversations with his friend. He has this white friend who comes to pick him up and, and then sort of alludes to it and says, you know, it's... And he says, what does it do for you to be in the South? It doesn't do anything. You just have a different relationship toward black people, toward white people. He says it in a much more kind of stark way. And he says, the difference is in Chicago, you don't have to make that choice. You don't have to have the courage to either love or hate. But that's the difference. But he hints at race. So, okay, let's stay with that. So Paul is identified as of mixed race, I guess. That's a term we would use today, right? And Bona is not. And they are colleagues and tra- students in training yeah teachers in right training. and it kind of like in, entangled in this this mutual desire that that is kind of consistently frustrated across the the span of the story and in the very well I, i'll kind of speak first about how bona sees paul i'll just read from the opening lines of the story if i may um where Bona is is thinking about how she conceives as Paul, and she says, 
he has a candle that dances in a grove swung with, with pale balloons. And then later on, he has the harvest moon. He has an autumn leaf. He is a nigger. But don't all the dorm girls say so? And don't you, when you are saying, say so? That's why I love just nonsense. And I, I'm intrigued by the way that Toomer kind of positions desire and sexual desire as that which unsettles our uh, our racial norms, right? To, uh, for Bona to to desire or to love Paul, it's for her to think of him in these aesthetic terms, right? It's for her to, to think aesthetically. Um, and that is the, the polar opposite of racialized thinking, which has very little to do with, for I think for Toomer, uh, with actual desire. Um, and I'm just, I'm so fascinated by that. And, and by the way he kind of like consistently posits desire and aesthetics as that which is going to deliver us from kind of stultified, like racialized categories, right? Um, and ultimately, like from from the political, which he has very little interest in <laughs> at all. Well, it's nice what you what you just read this passage that you emphasize. She sees him in really aesthetic terms, as mm -hmm. this beautiful appearance, very poetic metaphors, and then it cuts. He cuts it, and says he is this n word. That's what the other girls think, and so she's mm -hmm. now caught in her desire conflicts with what she's supposed to do, supposed to like, supposed to desire. So she knows the rules, but the rules don't apply to who and what we love. Exactly. They are, they're a bit outside of that for him. And then the story, well, and then she, they go on a date, basically, and his friend is trying to set him up or encourage him with Bona and says, she's different, she'll be okay with you. She'll, she'll accept you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, she'll accept you because, in a way, it's actually interesting. She accepts you, that would be political, but she does, she likes you. Right, yeah, yeah, more than accepting you, she she will desire you, right? And yet, I'll just read a, a bit from the ending, if I may. Um, so this is, is Paul uh, speaking to um, uh, a black man, in part about uh, about his, his relationship to Bona, and he says, this is Paul speaking, I came back to tell you to shake your hand and tell you that you are wrong, that something beautiful is going to happen, that the gardens of purple, like a bed of roses, would be at dusk, that I came into the gardens, into life, into the gardens with one whom I did not know, being the, the one he does not know, being Bona, that I danced with her and did not know her, that I felt passion, contempt, and passion for her whom I did not know, that I thought, that I thought of her, that my thoughts were matches done to a dark window, and all the while the gardens were purple like a bed of roses would be at dusk. I came out to tell you, brother, that white faces are petals of roses, that dark faces are petals at, of dusk, that I'm going going out and gather petals, that I'm going out and know her whom I brought I brought here to me, uh, brought here with me to these gardens, which are purple like a bed of roses would be at dusk. I, I, I just love the way that paragraph descends into... Um, this kind of like dense aesthetic thicket where you know, the way Paul makes sense of his relationship to Bona is as, um, it's not, um, an end point in and of itself. Kind of, uh, as he says, um, his thoughts, his passions for her are matched stone into our dark window. 
there, there are ways to illuminate passages that he never thought existed. Right? It's, a, it's a kind of beginning of something down the line. Um, and then, of course, uh, he, he leaves the garden, he leaves the black man, and he gets back to where he and Bona have been standing. Bona is, is gone. Uh, so their desire is ultimately frustrated. They never consummated. Um, but that ultimately isn't even the point. It's simply to have this, this desire be a, a lit match in a dark window. It's an amazing paragraph. You're right. It's sort of a lit match in this. There is a lot of sort of terrible things happening in this book. And he says there is a moment to light this darkness and the connection between two people. In this story, I think it's in this story, Paul keeps on saying, I want to know you. I just, I don't, and she says, do you love me? He says, I can't say that yet. And she gets really mad at him. He said, how can you not love me, but you want to kiss me? And he says, I can't, I don't know you. So in some ways, if we step back, and this is, I think, the frame, which is so hard when you said, well, he's mixed race, he's white. We use a frame that he doesn't accept at all. He doesn't want us to think of those two people in those terms. He said, these are two people trying to have a connection. That connection would light a match in the darkness of America, which cannot grasp any of this and keeps on regulating relations and keeps on putting categories on top of it and sort of who we are. And he says, no, they're just trying to connect. And he tries to share this with this doorman, who is the other black man in the story, really, who looks at them knowingly, says he knows when they run out of the they rush out of the door, they're a bit excited, they want to get out of there and sort of, and the black man looks at them and says, I, he knows and he says, no, you don't know, you don't know, you're also using categories, actually. Even you, I just think you know us as an interracial couple, maybe if that's what you picked up on us, because he probably is not recognizable immediately. And he says, even you don't know, I want to tell you so much. That like I, I want to I want to encourage you to 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 know what you don't know, right? Right. That 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 something is possible between two people, which is outside of these categories. But but even that ending, and this is the hard thing with, with King. I completely agree with you, but the ending uh, is unsettling because it's it's unclear if you know the reason Bona is gone is because this uh, kind of utopic idea that he had about about the lit match in, in the dark window is infeasible. Or if it's because um, knowing ultimately has, has nothing to do with, with the consummation of their, of their passion. Um, but he leaves us to kind of like, like linger around that question and figure out whether or not, you know, it's infeasible or if it's um, uh, something more ineffable, I suppose. Right. Well, it's very devastating in a way because you're kind of swept up with this speech, this impassioned speech to the doorman who's kind of on the gate in and out of the space. There's a kind of symbolic function. And then you're so impact, you're so with him to think this man is going to try something new and different. And then she's gone. Right. So you're left as the reader, I think, being addressed and thinking, so I'm in this space now where this man saw some potential for, for America. And let's say in a way that you know, it's not too much way. The white woman walks away from it. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, it leaves us in, well, I don't even think it, it's not about tumor leaving us in a space of, of ambiguity or ambivalence. The book itself feels so ambivalent about, um, uh, the potential to, I hate the word transcend, but I'll use it here. The potential to, to transcend 
uh, that racial divide or to transcend uh, those categories. Um, there, there's a kind of like um, longing for a transcendence that the book seems to say will never be fulfilled. And maybe the fulfillment is not even the point. Well, it's, it's interesting, right, what the word would be. What are we supposed to do with this kind of um, nightmare of race relations in America? Is transcending, because I think what tumors maybe saying transcending would be too close to forgetting or denying or repressing right. it because it's it's very real for us. It's very physical. This is a very physical book, very sensual book. People are living very much in space and time. They're not abstractions at all. And mm-hmm. if I can shift to the one, the, one of the songs, the Song of the Sun, yeah. which ends in a way also, there's a kind of, it's a very sort of... Um, beautiful plaintive poem in the book and sort of say it's supposed to commemorate um poor or poor that parting soul and song or pour it in the sawdust glow of night into the velvet pink smoke air tonight and let the valley carry it along and let the valley carry it along feels like this is the book also trying to pick up the sounds and the spirit and the feeling of living in the south for Right, and then the song goes on, and sort of the question is what you just said: Does the does it end? If this is the kind of a little metonymy for the whole book itself, how does this poem end? Does it sublimate it all into some greater awareness or not? Yeah, and I, I think it's this this poem is um, I think it was excerpted excerpted from Cain, uh, I believe, um, into. Elaine Locke's New Negro Anthology. I might be incorrect about that, but it's definitely one of the more famous uh, pieces from from Kane, in part because it does that thing we were talking about earlier. It's it's seemingly about the desire to commemorate and memorialize this passing Black folk culture. Um, but it's doing something much, much more strange, <laughs> I think, than just that, and it gets at the question you just uh, you just kind of gesture towards. I'll read from the last stanza of the poem. Um, so the speaker says, "O oh, Negro slaves, dark purple ripened plums, squeezed and bursting in the pine wood air, passing before they stripped the old tree bare. One plum was saved for me. One seed becomes an everlasting song, a singing tree." Caroling softly souls of slavery, what they were and what they are to me. Caroling softly souls of slavery. And that penultimate line seems like, to me, the most crucial line in the poem. So there's what those souls were within their kind of like the the soil of folk culture in the South. And then there's what they are to the speaker, which might be something completely different. Uh, In singing about them, he is transforming them. And it's, so it's not necessarily about um, commemorating or even transcending so much as it is about like seizing upon um, uh, racial identity and American culture as the raw materials for the, the development of a new culture, right? Of a new kind of conception of, of identity in America, um, which Tumor would just call American. Uh, he wouldn't, you know, have recourse to to black or white. Um, although I think that, uh, as I wrote in my Paris of E piece, this book is actually a kind of like early theorization of 
of uh, contemporary notions of, of blackness. <laughs> and what kind of notions are they when he's saying he, they, this is what these, they're caroling softly souls of slavery, what they are to me. And it repeats that line, caroling softly souls of sla slavery, which it's almost the first time he says it as a statement or kind of, this is what I'm doing. And the second time it's more performative, he's doing it. He is actually preserving, but what you said, transforming. They are not available to him. They are his ancestors. Right. And they're also stuck in a past where there was so little space available to imagine their own lives on their own terms. There was that available, but it was the spirituals and this tradition. And he's trying to say, I'm going to do something yet different. Turn it one more step. Exactly. You know, and I, I, I'll, I'll kind of like think, think about um, Timur's own kind of cultural context of the Harlem Renaissance and then kind of like look ahead to, to contemporary black studies. But, you know, Tumor is writing in a time where a lot of black writers and anthropologists and sociologists are thinking about the black past um, as a source of, of usable history. So uh, it's not so much that they're looking for a past that they can that they can adhere to, um, that they can kind of mobilize politically, so much as they can mine it as a source for new representations of African-Americans as, 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 again, the raw materials for a, a new kind of African-American culture um, to produce a, a, a new Negro, as, as Elaine Locke would, would state. So Elaine Locke's project is to invent a new identity sort of based on this kind of history, but he's saying, I went this new, and it goes in several directions, sort of economic empowerment, political empowerment, aesthetic empowerment, sort of African-Americans telling their stories on their own terms. Is that what that project is about, roughly? Yes, precisely, precisely. So, so, that it, so that it's less about kind of like slavish adherence to the past so much as it is kind of like um, uh, this dispersal of a, of a creative energy across multiple fields, both cultural and economic and, and political. Um, so that's the kind of milieu in which Tumor is working. And although Tumor was only... Um, <laughs> Tumor... <laughs> was uh, aligned with several cultural movements. You know, he, he hung out in uh, Greenwich Village downtown with, you know, white modernists, and he, he hung out in Harlem with, you know, black modernists, and uh, he was he was promiscuous in his, his allegiances. Um, it also kind of, like, kind of shows us how futile it is to think about modernism as being split into a white modernism and a black modernism. Uh, they're, they're, he's the kind of linchpin that shows us that those two things are actually very much part of the same cultural movement. Um, but in any case, Tumor is very much concerned with like looking back to this past, not as something that we have to be um, anchored to, but as something that we can interpret and parse out and, and deploy as we find it useful for ourselves. Um, and I think the way that Tumor finds that useful, and this is the way, this is the way I kind of link it to contemporary black studies, um, Tumor is interested in thinking about how what we think of as blackness is not so much an identity, although it is very much that, obviously, but also a, ki a kind of um, ontological position. Right? It's a way of thinking about the world, a way of, a way of moving through the world, a way of being in the world. Um, that confounds all of our attempts to to neatly categorize people into, you know, black or white or Native American, et cetera. 
Um, and I'm not sure that Tumor himself would, I, I don't think Tumor himself would say that he's like theorizing this mode of blackness. Um, but I do believe that a story like, let's say, uh, Cabinus, for example, um, which is about a, a young black man who, very much like Tumor <laughs> himself when he was younger, goes south to teach um, and has this kind of shocking encounter with, with black folk culture. Um, a story like, like Cabinus is about um, the fact that black people are in this privileged relationship with uh, a need to find new words, right? to find new ways of describing their position in the world and new ways to describe their kind of uh, peculiar relationship to American history, which is very much about a, a, a people that disrupts all attempts to, to neatly categorize. Um, and for me, I think that very much aligns tumor with people like Fred Moten, um, who thinks, who says that blackness is not so much, uh, I, uh, an identity, but, um, or he thinks about blackness as being, uh, most clearly articulated in the sentence blackness is X, which is to say blackness is, is this revolving door of adjectives that we might not have the language to, to describe right now. And so for tumor blackness is about, um, this never ending struggle to more finely and more neatly articulate, um, various aspects of an experience that is, is vast and that can't be reduced to, um, uh, to something like the black experience. Right. And in Cadness, this story, which is, so he's a teacher in the school. He's quite frustrated. He doesn't feel he's being treated respectfully. He's visiting there kind of sort of a visitor from another place. And then he goes into this workshop and there's a, then ultimately they go into the basement of the cellar of this workshop. And there's this old man, this old blind man. And he has this really incredible confrontation, the blind man who hardly speaks. And would you say this creative potential to find a new language, new words for something that is really new and it's fraud and traumatic and terrible. And yet it gives him this capacity to say, I have to reimagine everything, what history is, who I am, what America is, which I think puts Kane sort of makes it the quintessential American book of trying to break from a past, which is also the European sort of white legacy. It's trying to invent a new language for a new people. So you would think yeah. Tumor should be on the reading list of every, it is probably, it is definitely as important as Emerson, as Thoreau, as Whitman, as Dickinson, as these people, while trying to carve out a new space. And if you remember the scene from Cabinet when he's talking to this man, he's confronting this man and sort of has rails against him and says, you are the old past and you're being, and it's a really shocking kind of confrontation because this man is just basically helpless sitting there, his daughters take care of him, but he's really old and doesn't move at all. Right. It's it's, it's not clear that if, if he's an actual human being or kind of like an emanation of Cabinet's own tortured imagination. And the, I think the, the funny thing about that, that, moment where Katniss rails against this old man is that, and this is another moment where, where Tumor really leans on 
ambivalence as a way to kind of like uh, uh, trigger thought in the reader. It's not clear they're even meant to be on Cadmus's side because Cadmus looks so violent, so outrageous, so foolish in that moment that we're left to wonder whether or not this person, you know, charged with envisioning a new future is completely insane or not. <laughs> um, or if he has like kind of appropriate respect for this, this past that the, that the old man represents. Um, and so it's a Cadmus is a, a vision of that Whitmanian American feature as complete madness. Um, and I think it's interesting what you just said, whether he has sufficient respect or whether I also think the space of fiction is it's completely goes off the rails in a way into a different direction because it's fueled by rage and frustration and pain and sorrow. And he, in the song, the poem you just quoted, he says the plaintive song, he wants to sort of the caroling, he wants to hear the songs of the souls of enslaved people. Here he rails against this man. He says, you remind me of that. You're stuck in that same world. You're in the past. But the railing becomes itself in a weird way an effort to find a new language. It's as if he's letting us see the effort to find a new language. He doesn't resolve it. It's not a theoretical text. He says, this is my new theory. He says, this is my grasping for language, which is the most powerful thing I can do is try. Exactly. Yeah, the, it's, and, and that, that's a theme that kind of persists across Timur's life well after Cain is published. So I, I completely agree with you in that Cain is a book that is about the, the striving towards the wrestling with a past in order to uh, model what it looks like to engineer a new language, right? Without actually arriving at what that language is. Um, and, you know, Tumor never returned to, to writing a book, a book of this length again. Uh, he was never really published in mainstream uh, uh, publishing again. The rest of his life was spent um, kind of <laughs> uh, studying uh, European mysticism, um, you know, engaging with, with images, aesthetics, um, and doing any, like engaging with any aesthetic he could in order to find the language that he, that he was struggling towards. And ultimately he, he never did, but I think it's, it's in that failure to find a language that, that tumor is most useful to us, uh, today is that he, he models, um, a certain mode of, of thought and struggle that we've forgotten. Right. And it's... It's very important, as you said, the book is short stories, poems, kind of songs, and really a play. Cabinets is really a play in a way. You have stage directions, and I keep on seeing it in front of me as a play. It's their characters, they just keep on talking. The dialogue is really dialogue. It's theatrical dialogue. It's not fiction. There are, there are even stage directions at some points. Yeah, it's like yeah. he walks to the left or something, opens the door, carries a coal bucket. But what you just said is that he doesn't write a book afterwards. And there's a certain kind of um, sort of, I think, overemphasis on his biography for many reasons, because he's of mixed backgrounds. So he gets cast into categories he refused, right? His publisher starts, and that doesn't stop until today, where critics are keep on trying to put him into a box. And there's a great study, Nellie McKay did a beautiful study of tumor, and she says basically by him seeking spiritual unity, he gives up his art in a way. Yeah. And so in some ways, I think we're putting him into a place where we don't allow the book to do what it does. 
and say, oh, he never wrote a book afterwards. Like, he's given more to America than probably many people who wrote many, 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 many books. And in some ways, we're faulting him for him saying, well, I did my part, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to live my life and try to live this life. And instead, there's this weird assumption. He's like Rimbaud. He walked away from literature. How could you do that? Right, exactly. And really, it's not it's not a question of like, you know, Toomer not doing his job. Whenever I, you know, hear people talk about Cain as being um, a kind of, you know, you know, text of a classic text of African American literature, I'm like, well, it's we're not doing our job in really conceiving of this book properly, or really thinking about the um, the theoretical work it's trying it's trying to do. Um, and I think it's entirely appropriate to think about this book as being a landmark in black literature because it it is and it's very important to me for that reason but the more i read it the more i realize that he's he's kind of like churning through this aesthetic and intellectual project that we have yet to fully grasp i think well it's interesting you said it means something to you you know personally as an african-american you connected i read it so i'm a white european i read this book a very long time ago Mm-hmm. And I thought there was part of me where I'm reading it and I feel I'm being kind of reluctantly invited in to see a world and to to be part of a world that I don't know anything about, let's say. But then I think what the book does, it doesn't allow me to stay in this perspective, which we usually give fiction to that I'm an outsider and here I'm going to give you a view of the world that you don't know about, which I actually don't believe literature works this way at all. It's not travel where you see a bunch of pictures and so you go to Ireland with James Joyce and read Dubliners and you know what that's about or you go to <laughs> Prague and Kafka tells you the inside of that or you know it's that's or Maxine on Kingston offers me an image of Asian American life in LA in the 70s mm-hmm. the book draws you in and this book draws you in in a way where you're so implicated in it because you your position outside or inside to it is one that he actually doesn't want to accept he said you're inside, you're outside. This is, I, he refuses this because these characters break out of these categories, as we said earlier, through desire or rage or anger or violence, they break out of them. That's really fascinating. I, I, I have never thought about that. And that the, is that if I understand you correctly, it's that the, the book refuses the idea that, that one can be positioned either inside or outside of this, of this culture. I think every book... I think we all are positioned in a way. I think the book unsettles you enough that what you just said, Kavnis, you don't even like him. I mean, he's yeah. railing. You feel sorry. You feel terrible. He gets his assignment from Mr. Ramsey. Some white guy tells him, can you do something in the workshop? He can't do it. And he feels the entire weight of the South weighing him. And he's sweating. He feels pressure. This white little tiny man looks at him and he can't complete his simple task because he's not experienced mm-hmm. in his workshop. And he feels the entire South weighing. And you think, oh, I get that. From whatever perspective, you're not getting anything because he will keep on talking and then he rails against this other old man who's the target of his rage. So I think it opens up a space of what we would call ambivalence, but actually of humanity in a way that he doesn't allow you to be there. This is not to say that we're not related or situated, that I don't read it as a white person looking in in a way. And I think that looking in part is something Tuma really resented. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You're making me think now that um, in, a, in a piece like Cadmus, what becomes clear is that um, you know Cadmus, Cadmus himself. You want to think that Cadmus has a kind of privileged position, 
vis-a-vis blackness, vis-a-vis the the old man uh, in the basement. And what Tumor makes clear is that actually, no, he he doesn't. He he doesn't understand, right? He he struggles to understand. Um, And it's a a gesture kind of indicating that... um, I'm just kind of putting this together now, but, like, the gesture seems to indicate that we're all kind of, like, looking in or being asked to look in anew, right? To to refigure something that, that we thought we knew. And part of it, because their history is so traumatic, it's not there's knowledge. I mean, this is not that the old man has some knowledge and Cabinets either gets it or doesn't get it. He's actually the embodiment of something that is bigger than us, and Cabinets has to be in relationship to it. So you walk away from the scene thinking, is he right to rail at this? Because this is this is his history. He wants to step out of it. And then he, as soon as he steps out of it, he steps into a space where he's confronted with that history all the time. So exactly. it's, it's he wants to choose to say, "I this is not my history. I'm just visiting here. I'm in a better position. I'm going to go back, back up to Wash, wherever I'm from." And he steps out into a space, and he's constantly confronted with the fact that other people put that history back on him. Which is, you're you're really you're making me. Cabs is, is one of my favorite pieces from this from this book, but also the piece that I I think I you know, understand quote unquote like the least <laughs> because it, because it is such such a bizarre text. Um, because I, I always thought that Capnus, I, I, I read Capnus, uh, you know, at once wanting to leave that past behind, but very much like the speaker in the, in Song of the Sun needing that past, right. In order to articulate what it is he wants to articulate. Um, I mean, in, in, in many ways, Capnus is the speaker of, of Song of the Sun. Right? He is very much like Tumor. But it's sort of what Song of the Sun ends with, sort of the song, the poem talks about the sort of the past of slavery, the past of the South. And then it, this last stanza that you read, the song doesn't talk about it. It is it the song. It's yeah. no longer about something. This is a song. And I think Cabinus too, there's a moment when in this confrontation, maybe Cabinus can hear himself for the first time. He can hear his incredible rage and anger that he's tied to this history, which is rage and anger because it's a terrible history. And at the same time, and then the woman comes in, Carrie, the daughter, who sort of pulls him out of this state and he can't really see her either. But there is a mode out of it, I feel. So he's, he's been able to say something that he couldn't say until he was confronted with it in that basement. Yeah, and it's that, that he has to kind of, um, he has to cycle through that rage and anger and like an inarticulateness in order to realize, to hear himself at all. It's about kind of about the kind of emergence of of his voice, um, which is kind of is beautifully dramatized in the opening pages of that of that play, where he um, he talks about a, a voice that's like struggling out of his out of his guts that he like can't quite hear or like articulate or understand. And isn't this the beginning of the story where he actually, um, he has this song come out and then he, he there's a really a song and then he, um, doesn't he strangle the hen? Is this a story? Yes. Yes. So there's a lot actually going on that tumor is doing for us to say, what does it mean to hear too much and too little? He hears this voice from within him. And then he says, I'm going to show this landlady of mine who keeps these chickens around it's a very graphic scene. It's kind of it echoes all the lynchings in this book. 
there are people murdered. So I feel like this scene is actually his, it's a metaphor, it's an allegory for Cadmus trying to silence something in him. Yeah, it's something that, that, that he, he would rather not hear. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, um, the first page right now and let's see. In that first paragraph, it's a kind of uh, scene setting. It's like, uh, like stage directions for this, this play. And Tumor writes, the walls unpainted are seasoned a rosin yellow and cracks between the boards are black. These cracks are the lips the night winds use for whispering. Night winds in Georgia are vagrant poets whispering. Cabinets against his will, lets his books slip down and listens to them. The warm whiteness of his bed, the lamplight, do not protect him from the weird chill of their song. White man's land, niggers sing, burn bare black children till poor rivers bring rest and sweet glory and campground. This idea of like, not only does the landscape itself have a voice that Cabinus is like tr is trying his best to drown out because he himself can't <laughs> can't read, he can't hear himself like for the the voices that are speaking on the wind. But what the winds are saying, are singing about this like this awful history of, of lynched black children, which ends with the allusion to the spiritual rest and sweet glory in campground, which is where we all want to end up. Sort of that's the resting place of heaven. So he he evokes that, and be, the passage you just read, if you just read that in some ways, and I thought, oh, this is by a you know an author who was. Of mixed race so the walls are rosin yellow the cracks between the boards are black these cracks are the lips the night winds use for whispering night winds in georgia are vagrant poets whispering this is the the his ancestors whispering to him this is the the black population of georgia whispering to him and then he says he lets his book he, the warm whiteness of his bed the lamplight do not protect him so he is not protected, although he can pass for white. He's half white. The whiteness does not protect him from hearing the history of his people. It's not just the history of his people addressed to him. It's the winds of Georgia. Everyone can hear that. So this song contains us all. It's a really incredibly powerful stage setting that uses the three color, resin yellow. And we've now yeah. learned through the book, even people, you know, I didn't grow up in this country, so I don't know what high yellow means and black and white and all this, but I now know because I read this book. And the last story uh -huh. says... The walls are yellow, cracks are black. The whiteness does not protect me from hearing these voices. That's an incredible reading. Well, it, <laughs> it just picked up on the colors because this is a book really about people being categorized and all this. And he teaches you throughout the book to look at them because you look, you wait for it and you're like, wait, this is Becky, this is our sons, right? How the book starts out. Right. And there I think his whiteness does not protect him. And then when I think the next thing I would say, whiteness does not protect anyone. That's what two morals is. It doesn't protect me. I'm a white person. It doesn't. There's no shelter from this. These stories. This is the the the, the terrible fantasy of whiteness in America that they have nothing to do with this. Correct. Which is what what Becky kind of attests to in her story, which is that like Becky is a, is a testament to the fact that white people are like irrevocably involved like in this history and in this social life with black people. Um, as I mean. Baldwin said, and uh, where he gave this speech, but he speaks about black people and white people being a single family in a, a great house that is America, right? And we live together in this house as a single family, actually linked by blood. <laughs> um, I think that that you know 
some, what, 40 years before Baldwin was articulating that, uh, Toomer was articulating it in a much more oblique fashion, I think, through figures like, like Becky. I think, yes, and I think um, oblique and haunting, and they're not theoretical constructs. They are not talking about race as a concept, as a fiction. They are living this embodied reality. And I think what Tumor gives us is this, once you've read this book, and it's not an easy book, I don't think it's actually, but once you've read this book, you said America is not an easy place. And it's this huge struggle to articulate that difficulty because everything else is a simplification in a way. And it's, there's a sense. And then I was, I was going to ask you one other thing. So when he's in the, in this hole in the end and cabinets, He's in this basement and he goes upstairs. Carrie finally says, go upstairs. And he finally sort of takes this bucket of coal and walks upstairs. And that seems to me, I wonder whether Ellison in Invisible Man, where at the end, the protagonist mm-hmm. Invisible Man also decides to come back out from under the underground. He's in the cave, whatever he's in. And he said, decides to come underground. Right. And, and that's the beginning of the novel in a way that Ellison says he's going to come out and tell his story. Right. I, always, I always thought whether he knew to he must have known Toomer, right, Ellison. I would have read that. Yeah, like he 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 must have read Jane Tim. Remember, what, like Ellison got to New York in the in the thirties. Um, but I'm thinking now of the of the difference between Ellison's kind of description of the underground, um, which is this kind of if, if you would call it kind of a basically a, an apartment that he's built for himself underground with, with like lighting and a, 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 a LP player. He's just listening listening to jazz down there. Um, it's it's an entire kind of um, it's like a, a bunker in which his a liminal space in which his new ideas about America can can take shape. Here, the underground is in contrast to. Uh, I'll just read from the ending. This is from when Katniss kind of arises from the basement. Light streaks through the iron barred cellar window. Within a soft circle, the figures of Carrie and Father John, who was the, the old man. Outside, the sun arises from its cradle in the treetops of the forest. Shadows of pines are dreams. The sun shakes from its eyes. The sun arises, gold glowing child. It steps into the sky and sends a birth song slanting down gray dust streets and sleepy windows of the southern town. That is such an, an enlivening image of of basically rebirth um, that can't actually be uh, achieved in the basement. Whereas I, I think for Ellison, um, the basement is this place that is like, that uh, creates the, is conducive to uh, the birth of an, a new, a new um, uh, conception of, of race or identity in America. And it's, it's ultimately, I don't think Tumor wants to be in that, what is ultimately a tomb, right? Um, he wants to be out in the world, in that world of, of sensuality and, and embodiment, as you said earlier, um, because theorizing he's trying to do is, is very much about lived experience and about bodies and what happens when bodies kind of collide with one another and think, whereas for, for Allison, I think it is possible to just <laughs> remain in the basement and think forever. That's right, that's right. Yeah, actually, which was, I think Ellison also, you know, he read, he wrote a novel and another novel, kind of, and then wrote a lot. And I think his letters, Ellison's letters are coming out this fall. 
a thousand pages oh. of letters of John Callan is editing the letter. So Allison kept on talking, but what you just said, tumor stays in a, this embodied space of lived experience. Um, and part of it, their songs, their poems, they're more immediate to us. It's language that seems more immediate to our corporal existence than Ellison, which is a bit, it's different. It's a re, it's, it's, it's also a different kind of novel. Um, right. And I think for me, Kane, it's also interesting. I talk to people and I say, I, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm reading Dream Tumors, Kane, and they are people who either light up or who look at me and say, what's, what's this? This is, this is what? This, no idea. Yeah. And some of my friends, I have to say, with, you know, with all due respect, they have actually tenured position in English departments or such. And they're not told, I mean, they may have, uh, maybe have heard of it. And I actually think this book is so important because it does something different from the books that are that are put in the press into sort of sociological service of like yeah. you got, we got to uplift, we got to do this, we got to find a new way of speaking about ourselves. And Tumor's like it's Cabinet is really, as you said, he's not so likable. He's in a crisis that maybe the sun will rise and he steps out and there's a new day, kind of. But he leaves you to complete that. He doesn't complete it for exactly. us. Yeah, the, the book is not going to do that work for you at all. In part because to acknowledge that like a book cannot do that work, period. It's not the work of literature to do that. And it's it's funny that you spoke about books being pressed into sociological service, and I'm reminded always. I mean, this book is singularly strange and bizarre, but I'm always reminded of how when you go back to works uh, of African American literature from around this period. And the early uh, kind of pre-war period, they're always so much stranger than you than you've been taught, or that you than you remember. They're doing something much more interesting than simply kind of like attesting to black pain or agitating for for freedom or civil rights. Um, it, it's incredible to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think actually the radicality of it gets kind of. I think this is not totally accidental. It gets kind of erased to be fitted into a story and to, which is an important story, but these works stand in relationship to it in a way that they don't really fit into a story. They're not building blocks in this sort of story. They actually stand on their own. And there's something about this book in 1923. It's still so vibrant right now. It's kind of terrifying actually how you read it and you, you sort of think it's not a dated thing from the past. No, not at all. And it, it, it makes me, it, it took it back to the Song of the Sun, it makes me think about um, that, that poem is not just being um, a kind of thesis statement for how the book is thinking about its relationship to, to the black past. It's a kind of prompting from Tumor to the reader about how, how you treat the book, right? how you treat Tumor as a historical voice, um, that he's somebody who, who is going to be useful. <laughs> he is very much useful, but um, whom we have to kind of uh, uh, wrestle with and engage with critically uh, in order to suit our own needs. Yeah. And those needs, yeah, those needs probably are, it's, they're not, um, they can't be needs that people already know how they will be fulfilled because that would be nothing new. They cannot just be to meet some goals of what we want to achieve is 
these five things that we don't have yet or we want to get. Actually, tumors, that they have to be so new because the way in which you've been asked for what you need is wrong. Right. You've been put already into a category. You want this, you want this, you want this. So he said, this is not enough. Correct. And it's, I mean, like these needs are so new that we don't even know how to articulate the need. It's a book that is about a new ontology for like engaging the world, which again just it speaks to the kind of like radicality of, of the book. Mm-hmm. Now that's a nice way to end it. Actually, I think you're right. It's for it's a it's a demand for a new ontology because recognizing we are different from what we've been taught. There's a need, exactly. right? <laughs> So I want to thank you. This is this is great. I, this is really uh, fantastic, and I actually really I really appreciate it. This is uh, I think such an incredibly important book and such a difficult book, and you really sort of made me think about it differently. No, thank you. I, you you've made me you've made me want to sit down and read it again, and you've given me some some new ideas about the book that I definitely hadn't hadn't perceived before.